This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Palliative Pain and Symptom Management by Dr. Emma Jones. Hello, my name is Emma Jones. I'm one of the attending physicians at Boston Children's Hospital on the Pediatric Palliative Care Team, also called uh, Pediatric Advanced Care Team. Um, and I'd like to talk to you today about end-of-life symptom management. This is a topic that we obviously deal with in palliative care, but we feel like all physicians should have some basic competency uh, in, and hopefully through this session you will gain some additional knowledge and skills. Introduction to Palliative Pain and Symptom Management. The next thing that I think is helpful for us to think about just as we start out is what symptoms mean. A symptom is a departure from normal function or feeling that's noticed by a patient and indicates the presence of a disease or an abnormality. We often think of symptoms in general medical practice as clues that something may be going wrong that can help us find a diagnosis. In palliative care, we think of the symptom as something that is a problem in and of itself and we want to make a treatment plan to address the symptom. And that's the subject of this talk today will be the treatment of those symptoms beyond using them as clues for what underlying diagnosis may be going on. Particularly when we're thinking about pain, it's very important to think about the fact that pain is something that is unique to the individual, it's subjective, and that pain is whatever the person says that it is. So the objectives for this talk today, at the end of the session, I hope that you would be able to perform a complete pain assessment appropriate for the age of the child, design a pain treatment strategy for a child at the end of life. We want to be able to recognize non-pain symptoms that may cause distress at the end of life. And then finally, we want to be able to reflect on barriers or challenges that may complicate optimal symptom management at the end of life. Pain assessment. Okay, so as we begin with objective number one, thinking about uh, pain assessment in children, I'm sure we can all think about patients that we've seen that, we, that have been in pain and different ways that pain may look in children of varying ages. I think it's often helpful for us to remember that children may express pain by crying, grimacing their face, or by holding you know, the painful body part still. And those are often easily recognizable pain behaviors. More globally, pa patients may exhibit pain by just becoming less active. They may be more sleepy. They may be sort of withdrawn within themselves and not as talkative as they normally are. And that these may be pain behaviors for some children. The most helpful person that can often help you sort out which the pain behavior and what's not in a child is their parent or caregiver. Uh, I often like to ask questions such as, do you think that what they're doing right now demonstrates pain or how does your child tell you that they're in pain? This figure is a pie chart format of the various complexities of pain assessment in all patients, but particularly in children. We often think about pain assessment as a number. What is the number out of one to 10? How bad is the pain? But as you can see in this chart that the pain measurement is only a tiny sliver of the overall data that we need to take into account when we're trying to assess pain in patients. 
In addition to the pain measurement, we need to think about the causes of the pain or the other data that we might have about why this patient's in pain or what types of pain they might be experiencing. We also want to think about non-physical factors such as their emotional state, their parents' reaction, or their psychological state that may contribute to how much pain that they're experiencing. And then we also want to think about that personal history with pain and with interventions for pain, particularly how they've responded to various medications or other pain treatment modalities in the past. The pain experience is complex. It's about so much more than just tissue injury. And that thinking about, uh, in, a, in a visual representation, some patients who may appear to be in pain where you may, not you, may, you may not recognize any tissue injury or patients who may have very severe degrees of tissue injury but not be experiencing very much pain. This concept is often referred to as total pain, which is a concept that was first originated by Cecily Saunders, who is the mother of the hospice movement. And total pain is a concept in which we basically say that the sum of various inputs being physical, spiritual, emotional, and social all feed in to the development of pain. There's also various inputs from the patient, the family, the medical team, and the community that may impact the amount of pain or suffering that a patient experiences. This also works in the alternative direction that as we begin to layer in treatments, we can address all these various domains of pain to create a full treatment plan for the patient. The Quest mnemonic is something that I find very helpful as I work through this comprehensive pain assessment. This mnemonic was created by Wong and Baker, who are also the creators of the FACES pain scale. And it has a total of six elements. Uh, number one is Q, question the child. This is the basic pain history that we're all very familiar with. Where do you have pain? How much pain? When did it start? What does it feel like? All of those things. Secondly is U, which is use the pain rating scale. There are numerous pain rating scales available, and you want to choose one that's appropriate for the age and developmental level of the child. These are some of the pain scales for various uh, ages. The most important thing is to choose one that you feel like is appropriate and stick with the same one as you assess the pain over time. Next is evaluate behavior and physiologic changes. That's the E. So look at the patient. Are they splinting? Are they withdrawn within themselves? Do they have the grimace? What nonverbal information can you gather um, about that patient's pain experience? S is for secure parents' involvement. As we talked about a moment ago, the parent often is the person who knows the child the best and can really help you decide what the patient's behaviors mean and how much pain they may be experiencing. The first T, there are two, uh, the first T is to take the cause of pain into account. Um, again, this is maybe leading your diagnostic workup, but that it's also asking your, yourself the question, does this make sense? Does this degree of pain fit with what I know about the patient, or do I need to think about something different that might be going on? And then the second T is take action and evaluate the results. Sometimes you may not be able to easily recognize whether a certain behavior is due to pain or another cause, such as agitation 
or irritability. Often a trial of an appropriate dose of pain medication can help you sort that out. If a child is really cranky and crying and you give them an appropriate dose of opioid and they settle down and become more themselves, then you can evaluate that that was a pain behavior. If they're just as irritable and cranky after the dose of pain medication, it may not be a pain behavior. So that's an assessment of pain that could be used for a patient at any stage of illness. Comprehensive pain assessment is always a good idea prior to starting a pain treatment plan. At the end of life, which is the primary subject of this talk, it gets even more complicated. As patients are experiencing the normal dying process, they may have mental status changes that come with that that may make their ability to talk to you impaired. Their vital signs may be changing due to the normal dying process so that you cannot rely on things such as tachycardia or tachypnea to indicate pain as you would uh, in other settings. And that patients may exhibit pain behaviors such as moaning, facial grimacing, clenching up, even if they're not fully conscious. So we need to be even more thorough in our pain assessment. Once we have assessed the pain, we can think about management. Pain management. Pain management needs to be a broad spectrum approach to make sure that we're addressing all the causes of total pain. Uh, and so medication management is really only one part of that, but that, that is the most commonly uh, thought of aspect. And so we'll begin there. The WHO has published documents on guidance for pain management in patients with serious illness. In 2012, there was a pediatric specific document. This is a very nice uh, reference, which I would recommend um, you have available to you. It is easily available on the internet if you, uh, through the WHO website. The main four tenets of the WHO recommendations are, number one, to use a two-step strategy or a step-up strategy. Step one is for mild pain, step two for moderate or severe pain. Number two, to dose at regular intervals. This really is such an important principle that I think we often don't think about. Using medications as needed or on a PRN basis is very inefficient for people who have consistent source of pain as most patients at the end of life do. Uh, we need to recognize that the medication will wear off and redose at regular intervals around the clock. That is not to say that additional medication may not be necessary on top of that, but that we always want to make sure that a scheduled strategy um, is, is utilized. Number three is using the appropriate route of administration. This is often the mouth or the enteral route, um, but may be IV depending on the situation. The major principle here is to avoid painful routes of administration such as IM injections or rectal administration in patients for which that would be distressing. And the fourth is to utilize a treatment tailored to the individual patient. I like to think about pain management uh, using a few visual analogies. One is a stairwell. This illustrates the stair-step analogy that the WHO recommends. We start with non-opioid therapy and then we step up to opioid therapy and then we can step up the dosages as necessary, perhaps adding in other modalities or other medications until we achieve our des desired effect of good symptom control. 
The other visual analogy is a rainbow, and this helps me think about sort of the broad spectrum nature of treatment that we want to employ at the end of life. The rainbow is a broad stroke with multiple colors, and that sim this is similar to the way that we think about using multiple medications as well as multiple non-medication strategies to achieve good symptom relief. The toolbox is another visual analogy that I often employ. Just as a carpenter will have various tools for various reasons and that you can't build a house unless you have all the right tools, we think about our approach to symptom management in the same fashion. Of course, we have our medications, we have NSAIDs, we have opioid medications, we have Tylenol. We also have adjuvant medications such as gabapentin. And then we have many non-pain strategies avoiding things that we know cause pain or triggers, using psychotherapy, using massage, using heat, uh, all of these tools that we want to have available. Which tools will be necessary for which patient um, is part of your individualized treatment planning, but it's very helpful as you're thinking about caring for children at the end of life to have a very full toolbox. There are additionally more specialized tools which are often only going to be used by the palliative medicine specialist in an advanced care setting. These would be things such as methadone, sedative therapies such as ketamine or propofol, or regional anesthesia techniques. And I will introduce some of these throughout the talk today, not in thinking that you will use them in your own practice, but just so that you're aware of some of the tools that can be used in more advanced settings. This is the last visual interpretation that I like to use uh, of broad spectrum analgesia and thinking about having that pain in the center and then filling in with all of these different strategies using the non-opioids, the opioids, employing the WHO principles, utilizing non-pharmacologic techniques, utilizing adjuvants, and finally, if necessary, using interventional pain treatments in order to fully cover up the pain, don't leave any gaps, make sure we've got it all covered, is the approach that we like to take, particularly in the end of life setting. Okay, so now that we've thought about the general approaches of uh, stair-step model as well as broad spectrum, let's think about some of the um, specific modalities that we would use. For step one, uh, which would be the treatment of mild pain or moderate pain, we're gonna be utilizing non-opioid medications such as acetaminophen and ibuprofen or other NSAIDs. In the pediatric setting, we often utilize these medications, and I think most pediatricians are very familiar with them, but we're often thinking of them as fever reducers or treatment for very mild pain. And I want to point out that used on a systematic fashion in a scheduled manner, perhaps in combination, acetaminophen and ibuprofen can actually be a very effective analgesic. COX-2 inhibitors are utilized in pediatric patients in very unique settings but that for the most part, ibuprofen is the most commonly used NSAID, and that there are IV formulations of acetaminophen as well as Ketorolac, which is an IV NSAID that can be used in patients who can no longer take oral medications. The current step two, which are opioid medications, morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone are some of the most commonly used ones. Again, we're still thinking about stair-stepping on this. We start at a low dose often the published starting dose in most of the drug references you may be familiar with. And then we're gonna think about moving up as we need to make sure we fully control the patient's pain.
Again, morphine is sort of the prototypical opioid and often what we talk about, although we know there are other flavors. And that switching between opioids, morphine to oxycodone or hydromorphone may be necessary if a patient is experiencing a lot of side effects or just not getting the pain relief that you want them to have from the first drug that you choose. For the most part, I think that it's good to have familiarity with one, pick one medicine and get good at using it. So pick morphine, learn how it comes, learn how to dose it, become familiar prescribing it, and have some general awareness of what the other options are if the patient doesn't seem to be responding as you hope they would to the morphine. Um, a few more details about opioids. These are strong medications and people, both providers, patients, and families are going to have concerns about using them. Uh, there is no ceiling effect for opioid medications within a wide range of doses. So you start, you know, you start at the starting dose and continue to go up. Not, there's really a, not a maximum dose, so to speak. Typically, the oral route is going to be preferred, although there are multiple routes of administration available. Um, and that for the most part, for young pediatric patients who are limited to liquid formulations, short-acting opioids are going to be the main thing. So you're going to be dosing those again according to that schedule like we talked about. For patients who can swallow pills, there are long-acting formulations available of morphine and oxycodone under such brand names as MS Cotton, Oxycontin, Cadian, or other brand names. Fentanyl is a special case which comes in multiple dosage formulations. Again, usually fentanyl is going to be utilized under the guidance of a palliative medicine specialist or hospice, but the fact that it does come in a transdermal or patch formulation uh, is something to be aware of for patients who taking things by mouth may not be possible. So again, we're just sort of filling out that toolbox. I'll talk just a minute about methadone. Again, this is an advanced tool that's probably only going to be utilized by palliative medicine specialists or those who have really developed uh, expertise in utilizing this medication. But we are using it more and more for pain management. I think the public may only know of methadone as something that's utilized in drug treatment programs, but that it is a very, very effective pain control strategy. Um, it has both mu agonism, so similar to morphine, but it also has NMDA receptor antagonism. Adding methadone or changing to methadone is often very helpful. It also has a very long half-life, so it can often be dosed at twice a day or three time a day intervals instead of uh, frequently as short acting morphine is. However, this long half-life as well as some of its side effects, particularly uh, QTC prolongation, make it uh, complicated to use and should only be used by those with experience. But it is a very nice tool. And if you had a patient who was having difficult pain management with one of the more standard opioids, that would perhaps be a reason for referral or consultation to a palliative care service or pain treatment service uh, to think about methadone therapy. A couple of definitions to sort of help us figure out why a pain treatment program might not be working for a patient. One concept is the end of dose pain. So again, short acting morphine, we expect it to last for three to four hours. So if you have a patient who's complaining consistently 
of pain at the three and a half hour mark, that is just telling you that the medication's wearing off and so you need to dose a little bit more frequently or increase the dose so that it's gonna last a little bit longer. The other type of breakthrough pain is incident pain. And that is where a patient may have, for example, a tumor that can, the pain from that tumor can be controlled quite easily with a small dose of morphine if they're sitting or lying down, but if they get up to move around, the, there's gonna be a spike in the pain. This type of pain needs to be controlled with additional medication. You would not want to provide a level of pain control to address the incident pain because then you'd be over medicating kind of the background pain. So this is often where we instruct patients to take an extra dose of medication in anticipation of activity or when they experience pain due to an activity. That's often referred to as incident pain. Um, and then the, the third is a concept of true breakthrough pain. This is something that can't be predicted. We're not really sure why it happens, but the patient was kind of previously controlled on a certain pain regimen and then all of a sudden has a lot more pain uh, and therefore needs a lot more pain medicine to um, get it back under control. And this may be a progression of illness and that we sort of need to reset their baseline, or this could be temporary and that they need to increase dose for a short time and then may return to sort of the previously well-controlled baseline. Now that we've reviewed opioid therapy and the two-step strategy, I wanna think a little bit about adjuvant medications. Adjuvants are medications whose primary indication is something other than pain management, but that these medications are known to enhance analgesia. Some examples are tricyclic antidepressants, anticonvulsants, benzodiazepines, and that these may be very helpful for addressing pain such as neuropathic pain, pain associated with muscle spasms or spasticity, or anxiety as a potentiator of the pain experience. All right, now I had mentioned previously several times the stair-step strategy or how you would do a titration of opioids to get it to effect. I uh, just want to talk in detail a little bit more about how you would do that. Again, you're gonna start with your initial pre prescription of a starting dose at regular intervals. That's your base layer. Uh, you will also prescribe an as-needed dosage for any breakthrough or incident pain that the pain patient may experience and then reassess at a regular interval, which will depend on the degree of pain and the type of pain that the patient's having. This may be a 12 hour, 24 hour, or even a weekly basis, depending on what you're dealing with. Um, and that the rules of thumb that we typically use for increasing is a 25% increase. If it's mostly there, just need a little tweaking, a 50% increase if it's moderate pain despite the current dose, or a 100% increase if it's very severe pain despite the current dose. And when we work through an example later on, this hopefully will become clear. Barriers to opioid use. The side effects of morphine are something that is real to consider. We really need to think about what we expect as a side effect and how we can manage that side effect in order to make our opioid therapy more tolerable. Uh, constipation is one that we know all patients will experience on opioids and we should prescribe a bowel regimen preemptively. Nausea and vomiting can also be controlled with medication strategies. 
respiratory depression is something that we think about a lot and worry about. Again, in the end of life setting, we know that the normal dying process, patients may have shallow respirations or decreased respiratory rate. Uh, and we may worry that the opioids may exacerbate this. This is just another list of the side effects of the opioids um, that may ex that we may want to be aware of: sedation, constipation, itching, uh, nausea, urinary retention, sweating, opioid hyperalgesia, which is a sort of um, paradoxical reaction where you actually experience more pain due to oversaturation of the mu receptors, and uh, myoclonus or muscle jerking often occurring at very high doses of opioid medications. Often the principle of double effect comes into play in that we think that the importance of treating the pain outweighs any risks to respiratory depression that there may have. But another thing that can often make us feel secure is that that doesn't happen sort of all at once. Patients usually step down gradually, becoming more sleepy, then breathing a little slowly, and then breathing a little more slowly. Uh, not that they go from being awake and breathing normally to discontinuing breathing. Again, with that careful, slow titration of opioids, we can often feel secure that we're providing good pain control in a safe manner. Another fear that people have is addiction. I think in the end-of-life setting, this is often not, as at, not at the forefront because this is a dying patient. However, Prescribing opioids often raises concerns about exposing a patient to potential for addiction. This is a very, very low incidence. Most patients utilize their opioids appropriately, but it is something to be aware of, particularly to screen for any risk factors for opioid misuse that the patient or family members may have, such as history of uh, drug use or alcohol use. Again, that would not be a reason not to prescribe. It would just be a reason to be a little bit more careful and perhaps put a, a protection strategy in place if you identified some of that. Another barrier that I often encounter in the end-of-life setting is fear that the pain is a sign that the disease is getting worse. People want to ignore the pain. People don't want to treat pain. I don't want to take morphine because that means that his cancer is progressing or his lung disease is getting worse. And I don't want to have to acknowledge that. And so that often will get... Uh, placed onto the opioid therapy. The same may apply to previous experiences with patients at the end of life. If grandma was in hospice and got some morphine and then died, families may have a lot of fear that the morphine caused the death and it may be a, a barrier that is difficult to overcome and may need a lot of conversation and education around our intended usage to treat this child's pain. So in summary, talking about pain, uh, we recognize that we need to assess pain in its multiple complexities. We need to address the pain in those multiple complexities using a broad spectrum, multimodal approach. Uh, beyond the step one of therapy, opioids are going to be the mainstay of treatment, so we need to get comfortable using opioids, at least one. Ongoing pain warrants scheduled medication. No PRN only. PRN plus scheduled. Uh, First-line opioid is morphine, so that's a good one to pick to get comfortable with. And virtually all pain can be managed with oral or enteric opioids, recognizing that there are other modalities, but that for the most part, 
the mouth is going to be the proper route. Non-pain symptoms. For the next part of this talk, I want to talk, think a little bit about non-pain symptoms. Uh, again, to have some basic familiarity with other symptoms that patients may experience as they face the end of their lives and have a few strategies for how we may deal with these. Nausea uh, is the feeling sick to your stomach, the sensation that you need to vomit. And this may have a wide range of causes at the end of life. And the treatment strategy will vary based on the cause and the family preferences. A thorough assessment similar to that utilized for pain can be utilized for nausea and can be very helpful, as well as a broad treatment strategy taking non-medication as well as medication strategies into account. Some of the things that we like to do are to use small frequent meals to avoid over distending the stomach, avoiding smells that you know are nauseating to the patient, keeping the mouth clean and moisturized, good oral care, uh, and teaching the patient breathing exercises or guided imagery that may be able to take their mind off of the nausea, um, as well as using things like comforting smells or aromatherapy. If medication is needed, medications such as ondansetron, promethazine, haloperidol, lorazepam, or a scopolamine patch can all be utilized and it may be sort of a trial and error approach to find the one that's right for that patient. I do just want to point out that although some of these that I just listed may not be things that you would commonly think of as pediatric medications, in particular Haldol, uh, that at the end of life setting that is often utilized and can be very, very helpful um, and is often used when the patients are under the palliative care or hospice care. Dyspnea is another uh, symptom that patients may experience. Dyspnea is the subjective sensation of breathlessness. This does not correlate at all with oxygen saturation or objective work of breathing. The only way to really assess dyspnea is to ask the patient if they feel short of breath. Although in a non-communative or minimally conscious patient, you may infer dyspnea by um, work of breathing or sort of other uh, behaviors of discomfort. Dyspnea can be treated with non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic therapy as well. A fan or um, air blowing into the face is often very comforting to families and patients. Uh, it's comforting to the patient and it gives the family kind of something to do. Um, opioids are actually very helpful for dyspnea management as well and the dyspnea dose is typically about half of the dose that would be utilized for pain. Oxygen is of controversial efficacy for use in dyspnea. As I mentioned, often patients feel dyspneic, but may not be hypoxic or vice versa, may be hypoxic, but not feel dyspneic. And so placing oxygen on the patient um, really does not seem to affect their sensation of dyspnea. Again, the air blowing uh, may be comforting, but the oxygen itself does not seem to be the helpful modality. And then positioning of the patient can often be helpful. Sometimes lying flat is very difficult for patients, but sitting propped up or lying on their stomach or side is often easier. Um, and that again, just sort of working with the family and the patient to find the most comfortable position to treat the dyspnea is important. Uh, noisy breathing or excess secretions is one of the symptoms that can often be the most distressing for families. Um, this is uh, sort of a, um, 
sounds like a congestion or a sort of junky uh, breathing sound that patients may develop as they near the very end of their lives. In many patients, this is part of the normal dying process, but is most distressing for the family members. Um, some of the strategies that can be used to deal with this excess secretion or noisy breathing are, again, positioning and helping do physical maneuvers to clear the secretions. Positioning the patient and doing chest clapping or chest physiotherapy to help mobilize the secretions and clear the secretions is another strategy that can be very helpful. Um, decreasing the amount of fluid that the patient is taking is actually often helpful as well. Um, if patients are eating by mouth, their intake will often just decline naturally, but if we're providing them artificial nutrition or hydration through an IV or through a feeding tube, we may need to think to ourselves, are we actually overhydrating them? And that's why they're kind of getting this wet sound on their lungs. So thinking about decreasing that. Uh, medications such as glycopyrrolate or atropine can be used to dry up the secretions, but that these may have uh, sort of a unintended effect of making the secretion very thick and difficult to clear. So again, it's worth a trial of that medication therapy, but that may or may not be helpful in the particular situation. Fatigue is a symptom that often goes unnoticed, but can be very distressing to, particularly to patients. Um, often I have found that if you ask about fatigue, people will endorse it, particularly as they face the last months to weeks of their lives. Um, again, the factors of cause of fatigue may be many. Uh, one of the things, the treatment strategies is to assess for any treatment, any treatable causes. Um, if the patient is anemic, they may benefit from a transfusion or if their sleep is disrupted, they may benefit from treatment of their insomnia or better sleep. Um, another strategy is to sort of help the patient make a schedule in which they can maximize their energetic times uh, to meet their quality of life goals. For example, if this is a teenage patient who wants to be able to spend time in the afternoon with friends, we may design a strategy in which she naps in the late morning to be able to have energy in the early afternoon for the time that um, is most important to her. Pharmacologic therapy for fatigue mostly involves stimulant medication, methylphenidate or Ritalin. Uh, this medication is often very helpful in the end-of-life setting. It has a sort of immediate mood elevating effect. Um, whereas, you know, SSRIs may take six to eight weeks. A patient may sort of get a little mood boost immediately from methylphenidate. It can contradict the sedating effects of high dose opiates. Um, but there's really little data to support how much this helps or how helpful it is to a group of patients. This is another tool that you can have in your toolbox to give it a try with a patient and if it works well for them and gives them energy and helps them feel like they can achieve a good quality of life, then you can continue it. If it doesn't seem to be effective for them, then you can discontinue it. Short-acting methylphenidate lasts between six and eight hours. So it's again, it's an ideal strategy for use in the morning or early afternoon to give a patient a few hours of good quality energetic time. Decreased appetite is another symptom that families often complain of. He's not eating anymore. I can't get him to eat. One of the first things to do to address this is to recognize that this may be part of the normal dying process as 
patients are dying, their need for nutrition does wane and they may just not want to eat as much as possible. Again, small meals can be very helpful. Foods that do not nauseate the patient or upset the patient in any way. Treating nausea, treating constipation, so there's nothing interfering with the patient's ability to eat. And then using some medications that may increase the appetite, such as dronabinol or ciproheptadine or even corticosteroids, uh, may be helpful if it's consistent sort of with the patient or the family's goals. Really, the main thing I try to get across to people is that you don't really need to eat. It's okay if you don't eat. But if that if it's really bothersome to either the patient says, I want to be able to eat, I like eating, I want to be able to eat, well, okay, then let's try to give you an appetite. Or if the family is just so distressed by the lack of appetite that we feel like we need to address it, we can try to use some of these medication therapies. Case example. So now to try to tie everything together, I want to go through a case example of a patient um, who is facing the end of his life. Ethan is an eight-year-old with advanced rhabdosarcoma. His primary tumor was in the right lower extremity, and he had metastatic tumors to the paraspinal areas along the back, as well as in his lungs. He is currently receiving oral chemotherapy with the hope that this will slow the progression of the tumor and keep him alive as long as possible, but they understand that cure is not an, a realistic possibility at this time. His parents have decided to return home and receive their care in the local community. And they have asked you, his primary care provider, who they have a longstanding relationship with, to provide his pain and symptom management because the cancer center they're connected with is three hours away from their home. On your initial visit, Ethan comes in complaining of pain in his right lower extremity. He's unable to walk and he rates his pain as an eight out of 10 on the faces scale. Uh, his pain is exacerbated by standing. So when we think about sort of the comprehensive pain assessment for Ethan, you know, what do we know about him? We sort of know the cause of the pain. We know what he's complaining of. We know exacerbating factors. We've utilized the pain scale. We're gonna be using the faces both to rate it as well as to follow up. And we have an understanding of the family's goals, which are to stay home. So I'm already thinking in my mind, we're gonna to wanna to use oral strategies that can allow this patient to stay home and to avoid returning to the hospital. So what would the initial prescriptions for Ethan be at this time to try to control his right lower extremity pain due to progressive tumor? We would utilize acetaminophen at an appropriate dose for his 30 kilogram weight, that would be about 400 milligrams, as well as ibuprofen, 300 milligrams, and we would schedule both of these every eight hours. Tylenol can be dosed more frequently However, scheduling them at a three-time-a-day frequency both together is the most convenient dosing strategy for the family. So that would be where I'd start. And then we would offer a breakthrough strategy with morphine at a starting dose of 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, which would equal 9 milligrams, every three hours as needed for breakthrough pain. And then my plan would be to reassess Ethan in one to two days, most likely by phone follow-up. The next day... Um, we call Ethan's home and find out that his pain is well controlled. He's been taking two to three doses of morphine in addition to the scheduled Tylenol and ibuprofen. And he has been able to get up and walk around. He's primarily using the morphine 
for that incident pain associated with getting up. If he's sitting down, playing quietly, he doesn't need any morphine. Um, and he's been able to have a good quality of life with this. The things that are most important to my mind right now are thinking about managing side effects or anticipating side effects. So I reiterate to his mother all of the range of side effects we might expect. He may experience nausea, he may experience itching, he may experience constipation, and he may get sleepy. And that if any of those things become severe or worrisome, that they should call me and we could think about changing or altering his pain medication plan. I do prescribe a stool softener and a laxative to treat the constipation. As I prescribe that regimen, I'm prescribing both a stool softener and a laxative, something to, as we say, mush and something to push. Two weeks pass. Uh, Ethan has been doing well at home and he returns to the office now complaining of pain all over. He can't get out of bed. His mother had to carry him into the office. At home, he's become withdrawn from his family. All he wants to do is sleep all day. And when he does get out of bed, he gets out of breath just walking down the hall to the bathroom. This is a distinct change from the Ethan we saw two weeks ago. And we really need to come up with a new plan to deal with these new symptoms and this, this new crisis. The parental involvement, the mother's side of the story, she says, I'm just so worried about him. I've been afraid to give him any of the morphine. It might make him stop breathing. And you find out that Ethan really hasn't had morphine in several days. She is still giving him the ibuprofen and Tylenol. Um, and that Ethan, during the interview, is present in the room, but he really refuses to talk, and he just sort of sits in the corner in a very withdrawn manner. This was previously a very engaging and pleasant child. So again, thinking at this point, you know, I'm really thinking about what are the causes of this increased pain in Ethan? Well, we know for one that the mother's not giving the pain medication as intended, so that could be a cause. For two, he may have progressive disease, or what is the cause of now this all over pain? I'm thinking, does he have neurologic involvement? Are one of these paraspinal metastases invading one of his nerves and causing more of a neuropathic type pain? And what are the causes of total pain that Ethan might be experiencing having loss of function? This little boy who previously could play and run around now really can't do very much at all. And what impact is that having on his pain? You have a conversation with Ethan's mother outside the room and acknowledge that he's going to die from his cancer. You reassure her about the risks of morphine and you plan to visit the house later that week to see how he's doing. At the time you're having this conversation, the nurse is in the room playing with Ethan and he shared with her that he feels like his cancer is getting bigger in his body and he, and he just wants to go to the park and play with his friends. And so through this, you know, I think that we illustrate some of, again, this concept of total pain Ethan is experiencing the loss of self. He wants to go to the park, he can't, that hurts. And he's feeling that in a very physical way and that morphine may not be the proper way to address that. His mother is facing the loss of her son and that hurts and she's scared. And so she doesn't wanna give him a medication that hurt can hurt him even though it can help him. And so the doctor addressing that head on and saying, yes, he is dying, but you're not gonna hurt him with the morphine Let's see if we can make him feel better. Let's see if we can get him a little more functional. Are all the things that you need to be doing to really address all the multiple sources of Ethan's pain at this time. So subsequent to that conversation, Ethan's mother feels more comfortable and begins giving him the morphine as prescribed. Ethan and his mother begin to talk about the end of his life and plan 
ways that he can leave a legacy or um, make meaning out of his short life. They also come up with activities that he can do to maintain his quality of life despite his physical limitations. He's more able to get up and play once his pain is better controlled and his fatigue is actually improving because he's sleeping better because he's not in pain. He does experiencing some dyspnea, which you're easily able to control by doing the um, fan to the face. And the mother feels good about that because she's able to participate in his care and we don't need to use another medication. Um, the opioid therapy that he's already on for his pain treatment is likely contributing to his dyspnea management as well. But again, we're using one of those non-pharmacologic strategies. And so at this point, Ethan is comfortable on a regimen of acetaminophen, 400 milligrams every eight hours, ibuprofen, 300 milligrams every eight hours, and morphine, five milligrams every four hours, plus a five milligram breakthrough every two hours as needed. Unfortunately, Ethan's symptoms continue to progress. He's now enrolled in hospice, and you remain involved as his primary care provider in consultation with the hospice team. You're called to his home one evening for acutely worsening pain. You assess Ethan and you find him minimally conscious. His heart rate is elevated at 150 and his respiratory rate is elevated at 30 and he's moaning and writhing. This is a true pain crisis um, and that you recognize that Ethan is at the very end of his life, probably in the last days to hours of his life. And so you need to come up with a new strategy to treat this breakthrough pain at this time. In this setting, a rapid titration of opioids is indicated. Ethan had previously been on five milligrams. You're first of all going to give him a 100% increase as your initial dose. Five milligrams is not working. He is in severe pain on that dose. So 10 milligrams is what you start with. Although Ethan had been taking his liquid formulation morphine very easily previously, as he's now minimally conscious, we're going to need to use a concentrated sublingual formulation of morphine that has been provided by the hospice. 10 minutes later, again, this is a rapid titration. We're going to only wait 10 minutes to reassess the patient. We feel that the 10 milligram dose has really had no effect. Ethan is in just as much pain as he was 10 minutes ago. And so again, we're going to make another 100% increase. We're going to give him 20 milligrams sublingually at that time. After 10 more minutes, Ethan appears comfortable and he remains this way for about an hour and then he begins to moan again. So our assessment at that time is that the 20 milligram dose was partially effective. It controlled his symptoms, but not for very long. So we're gonna make a 50% increase based on sort of moderate breakthrough symptoms. So the next dose at that moment will be 30 milligrams. This leads to control of his symptoms and we feel like that's the right dose for him. So we advise the hospice nurse and the parent to continue giving him 30 milligrams every three hours from then on. Again, using the sublingual formulation because Ethan is not awake enough to take a full volume of oral liquid. With this treatment plan, Ethan remains comfortable for the next few hours and dies peacefully in his mother's arms five hours later. This is our goal with end-of-life pain and symptom management and I think illustrates all of the concepts that I've been talking about for the past uh, session. I've talked several times throughout this talk about differentiating symptoms from the normal dying process. 
I think in children, recognizing the normal symptoms of dying can be difficult. Um, I do want to point out one reference that's often helpful, um, a little booklet that many hospice agencies use and we do also use in our, in our palliative care practice called Gone From My Sight by Barbara Carnes. Um, and this is just a very concise, written on a family level description of the typical process that a person goes through at, during the last months, weeks, and days of their lives, including decreased levels of consciousness, decreased food intake, surges of energy alternating with periods of withdrawal, um, and really framing for families what's normal so that you can pick out what's normal versus what's abnormal and may need treatment. Often just helping people understand that what their child may be experiencing is within the realm of, of normal expectations is therapeutic in and of itself. And so uh, the Gone From My Sight booklet is something that you can get either through your local hospice agency or you can order them directly um, and may be very helpful for that. Thank you. Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.